You can use this. It's working now. Well, uh, welcome everybody, and uh, to. Um, our uh, breakout session with my friend, uh, Dr. Sasha Hines. I'm the Reverend Jacob Smith, and I'm the priest in charge here at uh, St. George's Church, part of the par parish of Calvary, St. George's. Um, and uh, today we're kind of looking at this kind of intersection of where um, uh, positive psychology and the theology of the cross actually meet. And uh, Sasha and I have had a number of conversations about this over the last year, and, uh, and uh, really felt like there was something to share here. But I wanted to begin kind of by opening up with a little passage of Scripture to kind of get us going, and so that you kind of understand where I think we're all at. And, uh, and then uh, I'll have my uh, friend uh, get up and say a few words, and then we'll go from there. But it comes from Luke chapter uh, 4, and this is uh, Jesus in Nazareth. It says, And he came to Nazareth to where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And uh, the truth is, is that uh, this is powerfully where we are all at. Um, you know, the poor are not people out there. The poor are all of us. The captive are not people out there. The captive are all of us, bound by our pasts and our presence. Uh, you know, uh, but, but this is a profound description of all of us. And then here comes the one who has come to set us all free. And, uh, and uh, you know, and the inevitable question is, is first and foremost, is, well, what's next? You know, we've all had that. Well, what do I do now? And then uh, somebody says, well, nothing. Or somebody says, well, what do you want to do? Or somebody says, uh, you know, anything like that. And that question, I've noticed uh, being a pastor now for the last 10 years, can be a little crippling, especially when I have just been blind my entire life. I've been uh, captive my entire life. And so uh, what is this word of grace? And how does it, uh, this positive word of grace, and how does it meet us in our everyday life? And we're going to look at this psychologically and then a little bit theologically. But uh, I want to invite my friend now, uh, Sasha, to share a little bit about her research and, uh, and her life. And then I'll uh, get up and share a few words. And then we'll open it up for questions. So how does that sound? And then we'll get out early for lunch and you'll be the first in line. <laughs> Praise God. So good. All right, we'll get started. My friend Sasha Hines. Good morning, you guys. Okay, I'm going to read through my remarks because I will forget things and then I will get anxious because I binge on anxiety like people binge on ice cream, so I just need to stick to this first. Okay. Um, in my professional life as a researcher in the field of positive psychology, I can tell you empirically what will make you feel better and live a happier life. However, I am aware that my fellow Christians might dismiss the science of happiness as nothing more than a self-salvation project. But now that my professional life has converged with my life as a Christian, I want to know how do I reconcile psychology and theology to better understand what it means to live life as a Christian. I'm not entirely sure, but I'd like to share some ideas that I have. This talk came out of several discussions I've had with Jacob about Christian conversion and the Christian life. Conversion, I, I think I get. 
the awakening when you grasp your needs for God's grace so profoundly that it divides your entire life into a before and an after. It doesn't have to be a blinding Damascus moment, just one that brings clarity and truth. But then there's the Christian life that follows, where I'm still left with my thoughts that are crazy, my feelings, my habits, and my actions. And here's where things start to seem a whole lot less clear. I grew up in a Christmas and maybe Easter Episcopal family. I went to schools with names like National Cathedral School and St. Paul's, but I had no idea that the gospel was good news or that it was any sort of news at all. At one point, and I'm really adding my family here, my father tried to bribe me to get confirmed with promises of a bat mitzvah-worthy cash payout. It's totally true. He's, he's coming to the forum, so I'm going to out him. At the, yeah. um, I wish I said no because of my firm moral compass, but honestly, I just didn't really care. The only thing I did care about was achievement. Captaining three varsity sports, early admission to Harvard, you know the story. But chasing all that external validation left me broken, raw, and fragile. I was quietly struggling with anorexia, and when I wasn't starving myself, with bulimia, which is the addiction that ultimately took over my life. Never one to admit to being broken, I decided to take a gap year in England to play squash. I'd been, it was a sport I was recruited to play in college. While there, I met a graduate student who took me to dinner with his missionary friends on leave from the field. I felt like Margaret Mead encountering a new civilization. <laughs> Never in my life had I heard people talk about faith openly, and like definitely not utter the name Jesus outside the walls of a church. After dinner, the graduate student asked me if I'd ever considered God, and I said no. Then he asked me why not, and I replied that I had too many naughty things left to do in my life. <laughs> and then he asked the penetrating question that changed the course of my life, but are you free not to do those things? This simple suggestion that I wasn't free that I was enslaved by my need to feel worthy and be liked, felt like air being blown onto the embers of a dimming fire. The notion that I didn't need anyone's approval but God's was a total revelation to me. I was free from having to climb this achievement ladder. But I committed my life to God only to grasp a new ladder, being an uber-Christian. I was sold out for Christ, joining youth groups, multiple Bible studies, speaking lots of Christianese. I was out to prove that God's anointing was on my life, and I was going to do great things for the kingdom. In truth, I'd simply exchange one suffocating ladder of achievement for another. After about two years, the bright flame burnt out, and I was evangelical Christian roadkill. <laughs> I had only one prayer left that I clung to with desperation— God, don't give up on me. And he didn't. About 10 years later, a buddy of mine from college invited me to the Mockingbird Conference, and here at Calvary St. George's, I, heard, I truly heard the good news of the gospel for the first time. But in the meantime, I had to get my life together, recover from my eating disorder, take responsibility for my life, and get on with the business of growing up, uh, which led me to positive psychology. My fascination with understanding what it means to live a good day and how one strings those days together to live a good life became and remains my professional preoccupation. So now, as a positive psychology researcher, I study the science of well-being and optimal functioning. 
Positive psychology developed in the late 90s as a counterpoint to the negative bias and medicalization that has permeated psychological research since its inception. In 2000, Dr. Martin Seligman, who was then president of the American Psychological Association, noted that for every four articles written on depression, only one article was written about well-being. Our focus as a field of social science was way out of balance, thus positive psychology was born. Positive psychologists primarily focus on what's right with people and what makes life joyful, meaningful, and ultimately worth living. In short, we study positive emotions, such as joy, peace, hope, and love, etc. Positive character, like humility, creativity, kindness, and perseverance. And positive institutions, such as family, communities, schools, religion, and the workplace. I also have a doctorate in developmental psychology, the study of how we change over time. So what can we learn from developmental and positive psychology? Well, first and foremost, humans are goal-directed organisms. Growth and development is hardwired into our very nature. We find it profoundly satisfying to acquire skills, be they physical, emotional, or intellectual. And I think you can really see this most strikingly in children. We are goal-directed toward three basic psychological needs, relatedness, mastery, and autonomy. Relatedness in terms of connecting with others, mastery in terms of building skills, and autonomy in terms of volition or free will, not in a sort of Emersonian self-reliance, sort of do it on my own kind of way. Um, in the acquisition of mastery, relatedness, and autonomy, there lingers the promise of happiness. Aristotle described this phenomenon a little less than 2,500 years ago. Happiness, says Aristotle, is an activity of the soul expressing virtue. In other words, happiness is tied to our right action. Okay, so I hear words like mastery and virtue and get motivated and inspired. Here's what goes on in my head. Bring it on, Sasha 2.0, better, smarter, faster, hashtag crushing it. Now, I'm a hardcore goal-setting junkie, and I'm delighted to dig deeply into goal-setting theory and habit formation with all of you after this talk. But here's the basic formula. Set a goal, create an internalized or externalized accountability structure, and exert self-regulated action toward, action toward that end. Extremely straightforward, right? But here's the rub. Humans are also the only organism that is psychologically at war with itself, which means we often sabotage ourselves on the road to feeling better. So how exactly does this happen? The oldest part of our brain, which we call the reptilian brain, which is back here, um, is responsible for survival. It regulates heart rate, body temperature, and breathing, as well as triggering aggression, fear, compulsive behavior, and mate selection. There's a number of other things, but primarily those things. This is part, the part of our brain that is constantly scanning the environment for threat and danger on high alert for what we call lack and attack. Constantly broadcasting the message that there isn't enough to go around and that everyone and everything is out to get us. This reptilian brain gives us a negativity bias. We're literally wired to see what's going wrong instead of what's going right. To use a loose metaphor, this reptilian brain is wrapped around the brainstem much like the serpent was wrapped around the tree in the Garden of Eden. The neocortex, or frontal lobe, here, which developed later and is in charge of helping us think, plan, change, has to wrestle with this impulsive reptilian brain. I think you probably heard it being called the executive function. 
So we want to change, but we seem to be immune to it, stuck with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brakes. I think St. Paul summed it up pretty succinctly in Romans 7.25 when he said, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So what does this have to do with theology of the cross? Well, you all can collectively thank Reverend Paul Walker, who I've never met, for bailing me out on this one. In a recent sermon, he delineated what he called the grammar of the devil and the grammar of God. Without conjuring up images of fire and red tails, let's call the devil our saboteur, the reptilian part of our brain that is constantly alerting us to danger and scarcity. These relentless messages don't feel very good, so we engage in all sorts of behaviors to avoid the negative emotion. And if you notice, it almost always begins with a conditional thought. So in my case, if I get my PhD, then I will feel worthy. It sadly didn't work. Um, if I make money, then I will feel secure. If my children would do fill in the blank, then I will feel like a good parent. If then, if then, if then. The grammar of this world, or shadowlands, as C.S. Lewis referred to it, is distinctly conditional. God's language, however, is declarative. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. As Christians, we have been grafted onto the vine. Thus God declares that we are already and without condition righteous, loved, and acceptable in his sight. So when that graduate student told me all those years ago that I didn't need anyone's approval but God's, he neglected to tell me the most important truth, that in Christ, I already had it. So instead of believing that conditional thought of the saboteur, I am sold out for, if I'm sold out for Christ, then God will approve of me, I can choose to believe God's declaration without condition, that I am good enough. So with a little hubris, I might amend Aristotle's definition of happiness. Happiness is not just a right action, but a right thought. The good declarative word must come first. Great. Have a seat. Yeah. And uh, I thought maybe we could uh, do a little bit about, uh, talk a little bit about first, so how does this play out in theology, and uh, theologically in the New Testament? And... Um, but before that, I'll begin with kind of existentially in my own life, and where uh, that happened to me was uh, I went to the University of Arizona, and I was doing my undergrad, and um, my uh, first semester there, I, uh, I went to junior college first, and uh, so this was like my junior year technically, and for those of you who have ever been to junior college, it's kind of like high school with ashtrays, and then... Um, <laughs> I, uh, and then I went on to uh, the University of Arizona, and I remember my, uh, so I was like, I was a junior technically. I crammed, uh, I crammed four years of college into five, uh, maybe six, but anyway, um, uh, I went and I remember this, um, this professor, I turned in my paper, and he called me in, and he said, Jake, you're from the country, aren't you? And... I said, well, you know, a small town, a little town called Yuma. Maybe you've heard of it, the 310 to Yuma. And I said, why do you ask? And he said, well, because none of you country kids can write. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, this is the worst paper I have ever read in my entire life. 
I don't know how you got in, but they're stealing money from you and your family, and you um, are getting an F. You do not belong here. And the word was true. The word was true. That was an F paper. And basically, it was one of those classes where everything was dependent on this paper and then one other test. And of course, what happened was is that I lived into that word. I lived into that word of F. And so that next semester, I was placed on academic probation, and I was preparing myself for a career at McDonald's. And um, uh, I was devastated. And there I went. But that's what I was. That's what I was told. F. And the next semester, I had another professor, and I'll never, I forgot that guy's name, but I'll never forget her name. Her name was Julia Clancy Smith. This is an exercise to see if interruption provokes anxiety. No. <laughs> so anyway, um, Julia Clancy Smith, and um, I did a paper for her, and it was one of those classes, too, where it was uh, basically three papers and a test, and I turned in that paper. And she called me into her office, and I was expecting the same thing, you know, and I was going to be on the 310 to Yuma from Tucson, Arizona, and uh, after that meeting. And she called me in, and she said, Jake, there's a lot of great ideas here. This is uh, existential imputation, because uh, there wasn't. Um, but she said, I can see there's a lot of great ideas here. And you are an A student. You are an A student. And she gave me that paper, and she laid it on the table. And she said, you, you're an A. And what's interesting is that A was in a big, bright red letter. Um, and there it was. And I could have gone home that day and laid on the couch and watched Star Wars, which I did the rest of the previous semester, and they ate grapes, because I was guaranteed to see. But there was a word outside of myself that said, you're an a student. It spoke into me. You're an A student. And, uh, and it declared something. And the powerful thing is, is that this wasn't an, a declaration from one of my college buddies, you know? This wasn't a declaration from the guys I used to smoke weed with at the junior college. This was a declaration from someone who had a PhD, who had an authority a word outside of myself that said you were an A. Immediately, I was prompted to ask, what now? What, what, what should I do? I shouldn't probably go home and lay on the couch anymore and eat grapes. Uh, where do I go to learn how to write a paper? Where do I go to learn how to uh, write a thesis statement and maybe three points to follow that? You know, where do I learn what a comma is? <laughs> and she told me, well, go to the upper division writing proficiency class. Uh, that's not because I needed to earn an A. It was because I was given the A already. I was given the A already, a word of authority outside of myself that completely changed everything. And I knew I didn't want to be the guy laying on the couch anymore. Not because I had to earn it, but because it was already given. You see this beautifully in that show, The Bachelor. I don't recommend every, anybody ever watch that show. <laughs> but if you do, if you do... There's always the powerful scene where it's about five episodes in where they have the rose ceremony right at the beginning. 
and the bachelor will give the bachelorette, so the bachelorette will give the bachelor a rose right at the beginning. And they go on a date. And what happens? It's the most normal date of the entire season because things are secure. And this is what the gospel does, is that it provides security because there is a word given to you outside of yourself that comes with authority, not yours, not your buddy, who basically says you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. But it's a word outside of yourself sealed in the blood of God that says you are good, you are loved. Now live your life. Live your life. And that's, that's very powerful. And that begins to be the basis and the foundation for all direction in our life as Christians. And you begin to see, when you begin to understand this, the nonsense that's actually being taught and the destruction that's being taught in a lot of churches that say deeds over creeds. I think what Dr. Hines has illustrated and what the scriptures illustrate is that everything comes first and foremost out of creeds first, the confession that the mystery of faith, as we call it in our prayer book, that Christ has died for you, Christ is risen for you, and that Christ is coming again for you, because he who knew no sin became sin, so that you might become the righteousness of God. I'd like to take us a little bit to St. Paul here, to one of the most misunderstood passages when it comes to uh, what we do and how we live our life in light of a positive word of grace, a positive word of relief spoken over our life. And it comes from Romans, it begins in Romans chapter 11, but it goes right into Romans chapter 12. And St. Paul says, for God has consigned all to disobedience. Uh, He's given everyone an F, that he may have mercy on all, that he may be the one to give you an A, an A A sealed in his blood. And then he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways This is a creed, if you will. It's a form of doxology. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The very powerful word there is not, and it's important for you to know, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you may want to figure out what it's there for. And, uh, and the point is, is that the previous 11 chapters, Paul has gone to great lengths to articulate that positive word given to you, the word made flesh that's died for you. It's gone to great lengths to articulate the A in your life given to you freely by God. 
You see, most people, they spend their life when they don't hear it clearly. You know, what was the word that your, uh, your doc, uh, the, the ministry Oh, yeah. Oh, when I initially had my conversion. Yeah, what did yeah, he say to you? Yeah, he said that you, the only approval you need is, you only need God's approval. Yeah, right. Which felt as good a, at first. Yeah, but as opposed to realizing <laughs> that you already had it. Right. You know, and, but when you, when you don't realize that you have it already, then you spend your whole time working, and uh, living sacrifice gets con- completely converted into this idea of you become an atoning sacrifice. You're not an atoning sacrifice. I love how Dr. Rod Rosenblatt put it once. He said, you know, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. And uh, so this, when you've been given the A, allows you to be something positive for the sake of your neighbor. I think what we can do sometimes is take the idea of total depravity and turn it into a negative theology of glory, you know, where we're like whipping our backs all the time. And we forget the fact that, um, you know, we don't relish in the fact that we are totally depraved. That's not good news. We relish in the fact that as totally depraved, we've been declared because of the work of another totally righteous. How have you seen this played out with your son? Um, oh yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna. I would like to take you through, like, to make this sort of to yeah. see how we get into these. I thought them call them. They're really thought errors. I mean, when we get into this like conditional thinking, it's really a thought error. But yeah. um, but I I was thinking a lot. Sarah Condon had a had a. Uh, sermon on the podcast that was she was talking about in parenting sort of you know there's like two there's either I'm the greatest parent in the world or you kind of like kind of glorify like I'm the worst parent in the world and you're like you know she had something funny like I woke up drunk you know like I you know (laughs) I'm such a bad parent I was drunk this morning with my kids like you you can go down that rabbit hole I think sometimes we can do that too as Christians like where and I I think I would get stuck in this place of does this mean that I can just go out and be a D-bag? You know, like if I'm, if now that I'm, now that I believe in God's grace, like declared over my life, like what does that actually mean? But I think the, the more useful way to think about it is really how it plays out in your life. So for example, I'm going to give an example of my life, like how these thoughts kind of, how this happens. So the thought that I'm, the example I will give is um, my son is five. His name is Jack. And last year, he had a swimming teacher who, um, after his lesson, jokingly said to me, you know, your son is, your son is physically lazy. Okay. <laughs> okay, and she was trying to, be, she was kind of, you know, making a joke, and it was funny. And of course, I was like, oh, ha, 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 but my mind was going nuts, right? So I'm like, here I am, like, recruited athlete. My whole life was about sports, you know. What? My son is physically lazy? Like, I cannot, does not compute, right? So I'm sitting there going, so what my mind is doing is this is what I'm thinking. So, so the circumstance is, the C, the circumstance is, teacher says my son is physically lazy. My thought on the next line, like if you're doing a model, the thought would be, if my son is physically lazy, he is going to fail. He's going to be a failure. And, but what am I making that mean? What I'm making that mean is if my son is a failure, I am a failure. I'm not good enough mom. I'm not a good enough, you know, I haven't done my job right. All of these thoughts I'm having. But it ultimately comes down to that thought. I'm not good enough, you know. So then because I feel I'm thinking these thoughts, which do not feel great, um, my, my feeling from these thoughts is anxiety. I'm like, you know, I'm starting to feel all anxious. Like, I'm not doing a good enough job. I got to do better. Oh, my gosh. And I'm starting to spin out on that. And so when I'm feeling anxious, my action that I take based on my anxiety is, what do I do? 
Can anyone guess what I did? What's that? Yeah. No, yes. I pushed him harder. I pushed him harder. I'm like, you're physically lazy? Well, like, we'll see about that. And then, you know, I, I like, get my son in, like, all sorts of, you know, I'm, I'm making him do more swimming lessons, which, I mean, clearly he doesn't love them. Um, but I'm like, because he has to be a swimmer and, you know, whatever. So then I start pushing him even more. But then, and then obviously, what he does, he, does he, re he resists me. And then the result of all of this is that I have more evidence that my son is what? That my son is physically lazy. So I spin out into this whole loop, and I've, all I'm doing is just confirming that original crappy thought or thought, you know, thought error. And it always is conditional because it always comes down. If you can follow the thread far enough, it always comes back to I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not whatever. You know, you can, you can, it always goes back to that place. But if you run the model, like in another, if, you, if you're doing the sort of de the declarative version of it, which would be circumstances, you know, teacher says my son is physically lazy, and my thought is, Jack is acceptable in God's sight. Like, that's what God said is true. It's declared on my son's life. The feeling that I get from that is certainly not anxiety. I just have peace. I'm like, okay, it's not in my control. I don't, this is not my... It's not my job. And then the action that I take from that place of peace is I delight in my kid for who he is and let him be. And I probably would ask him, do you want to continue doing swimming lessons? Which he'd probably say no. And then the result in that is I see a kid who's acceptable in God's sight. Like that's then, and then I have, then I'm like, my brain is then looking for more evidence and finding evidence that what God says about my son is true. So you can run this model on any thought that you have. And, you know, you, you'll, like, whatever the, whatever the thought is, and if the thought isn't making you feel good, it's probably a crappy thought. It's very powerful because oh, the, the first model puts you in the place of God. Right. It, 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 it uh, puts you right. in the place of God, and therefore you begin to see your son as an extension of yourself. And uh, that is my biggest problem too as a father is that um, I am see myself all the time as the ultimate father and that my children are extensions of myself. And this is an incredibly damaging place to be um, as opposed to the place where um, you can be free uh, because God has said something over them. A greater, a greater word has been spoken over them. And you can begin to see them as individuals as well. Yep. Uh, creations and uh, forgiven and redeemed by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a very powerful thing and uh, a yeah. healthy model. Yeah, yeah. And I think like in, so um, I teach at University of Pennsylvania in the positive psychology program there. And I find this so fascinating because in the fall semester, we, we talk about, you know, goal setting. We do a lot of goal setting theory and we talk about, you know, the theoretical models of, of uh, you know, well-being. And, and it's really fun and I love it. However, I think, you know, the students um, in the semester sort of go through this process where they're like, oh, right. Okay, so if I just do these things, then, you know, I'm going to get the outcome that I want. But, like, we know that's not true. We, know, we, we logically know that that's not true. There's plenty of things in our life that we want to change, right? I think as Christians, like, that's the hardest part about being a Christian is that you, you see your need to change so deeply, 
yet you feel so impotent to make it happen, right? And, um, and I think that that can be an incredibly frustrating place. But when I, when I look at so the way that we frame it in positive psychology, we spend so much time looking at the will, willpower, um, how you focus your attention, all these sort of things. But I think that the truth is, is that it really, you have to unwind it way before the action. You have to unwind it all the way back to the thought. It always starts with the thought. Mm. And if you can, you know, um, I love Jonathan Haidt. He has an analogy of the will. Like, it's not really a charioteer with, with a white horse and a black horse and, like, that's sort of the illusion that we actually have the reins on these two beasts that we can control them, but that's just not the way it really works. The, the better, you know, analogy is that we're riders on an, on an elephant, trying to direct an elephant, you know, the will being our, um, being the elephant, and um, it's impossible to, to actually move the, you know, move it. So the, when I asked him, you know, because he used to, he was one of our, prof he was my professor at Penn, like, you know, whatever, 10 years ago, but he, uh, he said, you just have to throw peanuts in the right direction. Okay, so that, that like mystified me for so long. I'm like, well, what's, a, what's the peanut? Like, I'm not getting it. Like, I don't understand how to do that. You know, like, I don't, I don't know how to throw like little goodies to my will to make me do something. Like, this isn't making any sense. But what I'm really beginning to understand is that like, the peanut is the thought. The peanut's the thought. So you like, you have to slowly shift the thoughts to some, like a good thought that you can believe that's been declared over you that you can, to, so when you start to say, like, okay, a bad circumstance, then you, you, can, the, you can think the, the good thought, the declarative thought, the thought that God gives to you, um, which would then sort of lead to a whole different cascade of actions and, and, uh, and you know, feelings and actions afterwards. So this has, like, really shifted the way that I think about this. That it has, you have to start with the thinking first. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that meets itself theologically. I mean, good God, any of us would ride an elephant, I would be dead. And so, um, but this is the, uh, and I think there's freedom in the sense that finally, theologically, there's a relief in the sense that I cannot control the elephant that I'm underneath. Uh, but there is one who has it all under control. And, um, and he is... Uh, guiding and directing that elephant for uh, my ultimate good and his glory. And, um, and, that, and that's where really the renewing of the mind comes into place. So often we think that when we hear St. Paul say that, the renewing of the mind, we think about, well, what are the 20 things that now I need to do? But, you know, we'd say it's for our neighbor, but ultimately we're talking about becoming an atoning sacrifice again. But you can ride the elephant when you realize that you are a living sacrifice. And uh, that, um, uh, and that, uh, uh, and that, God is actually, you know, while I'm throwing peanuts, He's the one leading it by the trunk. I love that scene from the horse and his boy in C.S. Lewis and uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, the boy is on the horse, and Aslan is all along guiding that horse up that narrow crag. And a very beautiful thing. And that, um, you know. Um, in the midst, I may be throwing peanuts for the sake of my neighbor and the best of my ability, but there is a loving God who's got that, that elephant by the trunk and is leading me where he wants me to be because he loves me and he's given me uh, that word outside of myself. Right. Yeah. Good. 
Does anyone have any Anybody thoughts? have yeah. any thoughts or questions? Maybe you hated what we just presented. Yeah. Maybe you loved it. Uh, but y yeah. Feel better. Give me a positive You're word. You're feeling good enough so, now. But, uh, good. <laughs> Right, because if you, so this is what happens is the stakes get higher, right? So, you know, it's not just like, I mean, everyone's like, oh, who cares? A five-year-old and a swimming coach, like, it doesn't, I'm a teacher, you know, like, it doesn't matter. It's totally irrelevant, which is true. It's totally irrelevant. But then, you know, your, your child is applying to college, and then someone says something about your child in the process of them applying to college, and then you, the, the fear that they're not going to get into the right college or whatever, like all of a sudden that's really palpable, right? Like that's right in your face. And you, to be able to, um, but the same model applies. Like God is guiding my son. God, that Jack has, my son has a journey with God and I am not in control of that. Um, it still applies. And it's not to say that I won't take, like if my someone, you know, if I found out my son was like doing drugs, you, you're not taking taking some action to, to do that, but you could, it changes the way in which you do it. And speaking as an addict, you know, uh, um, uh, there, there's a reason why a person falls into addiction. And there is, and that is because, um, uh, you know, the addiction is actually a fruit of something very extremely negative in my, in my life, in our life, that we are trying to... Uh, um, compensate for for that missing word mm -hmm. uh, that ultimate word that breaks into my life you know I'm compensating for a lack of love I'm compensating for uh, an image that has been given to me um, I'm compensating for my failure to uh, you know that reptile part of my brain squeezing it to death mm -hmm. and uh, so there is a there's a so to, to see that as an addiction too I mean the, the that all the more backs up what you're saying. Right. And so that the word outside of me needs to break in. Now, I, the, the one thing I want to make clear is, like, this is really different than the sort of Stuart Smalley affirmation. And I, right. I want to make this really clear. Because an affirmation is something that you say to yourself, but really you just don't believe it. You're staring in the mirror like, I'm good enough, and I'm smart enough, and you don't believe it. And so it has nothing, it, it doesn't do anything, because you don't believe the thought. But what's so powerful about um, the, the gospel is that God has, he declares these truths about us to us, and it's, we're getting, as you said, like it's a word from this, from authority. It's a, it's a true word that we can believe. So, you know, my actions, like I'm, my actions aren't going to change unless it's, de it's derived ultimately from a thought I believe. My actions are derived from the thought that I'm believing. So if the thought that I'm believing is, I'm not a good enough mom, it has a cascade of events. If I believe the thought, God says I'm good enough, like God declared that I'm good enough, then it has a whole other cascade of effects. So I think, but it really, but it comes ultimately from like, the, it has to be a, a thought that you are believing. So like affirmations, I mean, we have plenty of research to show affirmations don't work. 
And uh, that is ultimately theologically when we speak of the idea of faith. Uh, is very important. Most people think of faith today, when you talk to them, they think of it as an acceptable form of superstition. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, you know, they're like, well, I just have enough faith, you know, just a lot of faith. And you're like, well, what is faith? Well, I don't know, I just got it. And, um, but when you begin to read, like, the New Testament and St. Paul's definition of faith and the Bible's definition of faith, you see that faith is what God creates in us out of absolutely positively nothing because he has spoken something. He's spoken a word that became flesh and that which we hear now, the good news that we hear, God uses that by the Holy Spirit to create something within us to believe God despite oftentimes all evidence to the contrary. And so this uh, becomes then what we talk about, this word outside of ourselves theologically creates within us faith to believe in. I am a total addict, but uh, God says that somehow I am the righteousness because of an event that happened outside of me 2,000 years ago and has forgiven me and declared me the righteousness of God. Like it's a, it's a word outside of us that creates something within us to believe and hold fast. And that's not our own, but is Christ's gift to us. Yeah. One thing that's sort of helped me lately thinking about this is it, you know, I have free will. We all have free will. My, the, I have the free will to decide. Like, am I going to choose to believe that I'm not a good enough mom, or am I going to choose to believe what God has said about me? And that's the free will that we have. We have the free will to make that decision, to, to choose to believe one or the other. Yeah, well, I would say that um, ultimately, like in, the, like, in things that are above, like God, I don't necessarily have the instinct to believe it it has to be created within me to believe it right. to hold on to it because i'm go- i'm dead and god is going to bring me to life through that positive word that word of the gospel that's the word that brings me to life to cling to the promises of god i do have the choice now to like brush my teeth in the morning or or things like that i'm not an automaton or a robot but um um and i do now have a decisions of how i'm going to treat my neighbor and what i'm going to do here and there but ultimately, um, this, I think this would be the major distinction, is that this word uh, is given to me. And, uh, and uh, I don't have the instinct to believe it on my own. But when it's given to me, I'm given the grace to receive it and hold on to it, because that's all I've got. And, uh, and, uh, and then everything else um, flows out of that. And uh, the, the things that, and the decisions I make, knowing that those two are covered in the blood of Jesus. And, uh, and move me forward in this life till I'll see him face to face, where because of Jesus, he'll say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And, um, and, so, there, and, uh, so, and so that there it is, and we don't have to like worry now. It's no longer a choose your own adventure. You know what I mean? Do I go to page eight or page nine? Uh, God is going to be there on page eight and page nine, covering it all and saying, you are still, because of my son, the righteousness of God. Jeremy. Thank you.
It's yeah, very I good like thoughts. the image of the elephant being led even better than throwing, me having to throw peanuts. I'd rather not have to throw any peanuts at all. I just want God to do it. <laughs> I think we're, we're given the illusion that we're throwing peanuts yeah, yeah, existentially, yeah. you know, but the truth is, is that the, that elephant's going where he wants. And uh, praise God that God's got the trunk. So anyway, there's a question in the back back there. Yeah. Great. Well, um, theologically speaking, I want to, like, just make sure that we don't get into category mistakes here. And so, and I apologize if I caused that. But um, uh, the gospel is the word that I receive. And now um, I'm going to live out uh, the law. You know what I mean? And so it's uh, the gospel now is the word that is given to me um, and that I believe. And uh, now um, through that comes because you live the law you live the law you believe the gospel and so that is a that's a very important thing and so but now it looks like uh maybe beginning to look like something like maybe what god had intended in the ordered creation at least for maybe five seconds and uh who knows but uh, maybe it actually looks like for about 7.8 seconds i see my child as an individual and I'm not worried about how they're projecting onto me and what other people think because Henry didn't shake that guy's hand coming out of the church and I can still love him, you know what I mean? It doesn't, you know, maybe it looks like I can actually bring my wife flowers without uh, trying to get out of the doghouse and uh, you know what I mean? So, but for, for like about 7.8 seconds, uh, the law is beginning to, you know, it, it begins to look like loving your neighbor as yourself uh, because, um, uh, for a brief moment, God has given you the will uh, by faith to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Did I hope that answer something? Yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to add, like, I like that. I think that that's really nicely said because the, the truth is, like, we're, it's not like we're lobotomizing. You know, we're not taking that reptilian part of our brain out. That's like, right. we are, those thoughts are relentless and they won't go away. That's right. So you Until just know dead. they're there. You know, like, yeah, they're there forever. You got them. Somebody was once asked me, they were like, well, when, 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 is, when am I going to start seeing it? And I was like, well, probably when you're dead and Jesus pulls you out of the tomb. Uh, they didn't come back to church. But anyway, uh, but, uh, that, that's, like, that's the truth. It just doesn't end until you're dead. And then God raises you from the dead, right. a new crea- like a truly new creation. So you're a new creation now, but uh, there's going to come a time when you're going to be like, wow, that's it. I saw a question over here, John Adams, or a comment. Yeah, please. Praise God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It just happened, absolutely. So, I mean, that is a perfect thing, and that's what St. Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God. Yeah. So it is, it is, that is fruit, definitely, and uh, not a work for seven seconds. (laughs) Yeah, there's a hand in the back. John. 
I love it. Thank you, right. St. John. And by the way, this is, I think that's such a wonderful illustration because this is the Mockingbird Conference, right? The whole point of Mockingbird is like, you got to hear this a thousand times again and again and again and again. And we're literally, I mean, in, scientifically, you know, you're rewiring your brain. You're creating new neural pathways in your brain. When you repeat those, when you repeat these, these truths about yourself that God has declared on your life, you're literally retraining your brain to, 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 to go on that neural pathway instead of the other, you know, instead of other pathways that we've, so I've spent a long, lot of my life developing them. They're very, very <laughs> deep ruts in those, uh, in those neural pathways. But, um, you know, it's, it's the repetition of it. It's like really, you just, it's a, you just have to keep, you know, practice, practicing it. That's good. Yeah, and I like that too. Uh, the last thing I need in my life is more challenge. Um, you know, and, uh, and that's exactly what St. Paul says, is that, uh, you know, especially in Second Corinthians, when he opens up, he says that, and from, well, I'll just read it. He says, um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So the idea being is that not a challenge, but a God of comfort and a God of mercy. And that word which works through us becomes an enabling thing to comfort our neighbor and speak a word to St. John and to St. Luke and to St. Jeremy and St. Sasha. And, uh, and so those, uh, that, that becomes a thing. Lauren?
Yeah, that's a great example of how that plays out. Well, I think this is a good place where we can begin to wrap it up and um, and say a, say a prayer. I do want to say that um, probably 20 years ago, I would have got out of the car and run, um, but I... <laughs> Because I didn't hear this, and I lived in terror of the law, and I, you know, and there's a part of me that still does. Um, I've been to jail in three countries, and um, you want to hear that, ask Dave. But, uh, um, but the, really? this is, yeah, I have. And so Mexico, Germany, and the United States. But anyway, um, if, so I know a lot about the law, and um, in three countries. And so, but, uh, um, but I do want to say that this ultimately what we're talking about is what distinguish is is a distinction between the way the world operates and the way the bible operates and the way our god operates the world will tell you to go by what you see and this is very gnostic and uh, you know i have to be able to see it i have to be able to see it did you see, you hear people all the time say did you see god uh, no but uh, what we do believe um, going all the way back to the to the in our Judeo-Christian tradition here, is that we hear God, and we have a God who speaks. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Let he who has ears, let them hear. Faith comes by hearing. And the word given to you today, by the authority given to me as a minister in Christ's church, is that because of the work of Jesus Christ, his shed blood for you on the cross, in his death and resurrection, all of your sins are completely and totally forgiven. Hear that word and believe the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are not about to let us have the final say, but rather you have given us a word the final word, and it's a word of hope in Jesus Christ, in whom we live, move, and have our being. Let that gospel be a relief to us today, and may it bear fruit in our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Thank you, Sasha, yeah, very thanks, much, guys. and thank you, everybody. If you have any further questions, we'd be happy to hang out up here, but I want to keep my promise, and uh, you will be first in line for lunch. Praise God.